Welcome to Converge Coffee with Sean Sullivan. I'm here with Ashley Foss. She is a marketer, writer, and speaker by day, and a singer, actor, and fitness fiend by night. Her work has been featured in Time, Forbes, The Muse, and the Journal of Brand Strategy. She has shared insights with audiences at Harvard Business Review, Inbound, and Marketing Profs. She works at Atlassian, a collaboration software maker on mission to unleash the power of every team. Ashley, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Sean. How are you? Oh, I mean, we were in the green room talking about life changes and things happening for a reason. And this is the first recording in my new space. And so if it's a little echoey, I'm sorry, but you know what? We're going to keep going with this. And so, but I think it was really interesting. Um, like we got connected on LinkedIn. Like I was searching for a new role a few months ago. Uh, you were just been awesome in the sense of like connecting over at your company, as well as you started to do like an Ask Ashley kind of thing too. And it's been interesting in the sense of what's kind of been going on with social media marketing and just different things within marketing, especially with LinkedIn as we kind of got connected there. And you kind of presented to me a very interesting um, point of view is very much thought leadership and thought leadership with having individuals and not just the company, individuals within the company talk about the company. So I want to set the stage real quick and just the, the initial, just first question right out of the gate is, you talked about four pillars of thought leadership. What are those four pillars? And then we can just go from there. Sure. So this is a problem that I wrestled with uh, in my own work for the better part of a decade. And so I've kind of landed on these four pillars. They seem to resonate with folks and I have found them to be useful. So the first is credibility. And this is really around, do people believe you when you say things? The second is around profile. And this is the nature of how many people know you and the nature of those connections. So um, this is also for things like media, conferences, you know, are you getting into top tier publications? Are you speaking to large audiences. Next is being prolific. So this is how many different channels are you on, different asset types, how often are you publishing, speaking, sharing. And then last is depth of ideas. And this is really about that. Uh, if you look at the definition at its core of thought leadership, it's have thoughts and be a leader. The depth of ideas piece is that have thoughts piece. You've got to be doing something new or novel, but you also have to be codifying that in a way that other people can test it, learn from it, execute it, change their mind about how they're doing things. And so that depth of, depth of ideas piece is where a lot of people get stuck. They think that because they're smart, because they're good at their job, because they're making a lot of money for themselves or their team, that they're a thought leader. But they're missing that codifying piece in the depth of ideas. It's if you just keep it for yourself, then you're not being a leader, which is again, that second part of thought leadership. So those are the four pillars, uh, credibility, profile, being prolific and depth of ideas. You hit it on the head that I've been struggling with because I've been talking to other C-suite and just other folks who have started their companies and they get frustrated. A lot of them who are kind of remain silent, they see a lot of surface level ideas on LinkedIn. And it's not going steps deeper in the sense of practical, actually actionable advice. And that's why I started this podcast was I got sick of just the, the list posts and this is how do you do things. And it got to the point where like, okay, how can I teach another person, but being more practical at it. And so my kind of my second question is, and kind of adding an addendum a little bit to it too, is why are not C-suite and founders the best to build thought leadership for the organizations, as well as 
in within that, you could probably kind of reveal within the depths, within things, what's kind of the how to balance in the sense of practical advice to explain it, but then also build a call to action within that so people can actually start doing. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm very excited about this. So uh, first thing I'll say around um, kind of that that founders or C-suite, a lot of the time people really want to lean into those folks as the thought leader for the organization. And they'll say, we're going to do thought leadership for a founder or an executive. The problem with that is that in order to do thought leadership, again, if we go back to the definition, you have to have thoughts and be a leader. And so people get blinded by the big title. And that big title points to a bit of credibility. Obviously, they've probably been in the industry for a while. Um, and it points to that profile. If you've got a fancy title, it's easier to secure those bigger opportunities. However, what they're what they tend to be missing at that level is that that prolific pillar and the depth of ideas. And remember, the depth of ideas, that key thing is around doing new and novel things and codifying it. So usually these folks are too busy. This is the myth of the too busy executive or the, the trope of the too busy executive. So that's the first struggle with that is that they aren't making the time to be prolific and, and really dive deep on that depth of ideas. The second piece of this is if you go back to the Edelman Trust Barometer, this is a longitudinal study. It's been going on for the last decade or so. And what they found is that trust is declining for traditional markers of authority. So journalists, government, religious leaders, even business leaders. But what they do find is that people trust people like themselves. And they also trust people who they have a personal connection or a personal experience with. So I trust my CEO more than I trust a generic CEO. I trust my peers, people in my community, more than I trust strangers. And this makes sense, right? If I can make a connection with you, if I can feel like I know you and look you in the eye, then I trust you. So when we think about C-suites and execs and founders, they tend to be quite far removed from the audience. Again, because they're so busy, it's hard to get to know them. And so if we take something like LinkedIn, they're not really willing to post frequently. They're not really responding to the comments. And so it's like, okay, they're just sitting in this ivory tower declaring things. That doesn't build trust. And so people don't trust them. And so again, that, that almost gets at that credibility piece as well, where that's fine that you built this company, but how are you going to speak to me as a practitioner when you're so far away from the work? And so when you start talking about that thought leadership and building that trust with peers, you have to have thought leaders at, the, at all levels of the organization. It can't just be the founder or an executive declaring things because they don't have that connection and that trust built with the practitioners. So that's the second thing I'll say in terms of this being difficult and why they may not be the best. The third thing I'll say is that often because they are having to spend so much time building consensus internally, they're a bit twitchy about trying to come out with an opinionated point of view externally. They don't want to ruffle feathers with the investors. They don't want to ruffle feathers with the shareholders. They don't want to ruffle feathers with recruiting. They don't want to ruffle any feathers with the press, right? They don't want to unleash this avalanche of potential negativity externally. And so because of that, they come out with a really watered down PR, marketing speak point of view, right? Like it's very easy to say, leaders should be inspiring. I mean, yes, thank, thank you, but 
that's not thought leadership, right? Or they'll come out and they say, okay, we're going to say something. They'll say like, I'm not a boss. I'm a leader. And everyone's like, yeah, clapping, right? And you're just like, okay, you haven't said anything. Like you, you think you've been contrarian, but you really haven't. So I think that's the other piece of it is for something to be a piece of thought leadership, it has to have that leadership quality in terms of doing something new, um, helping people change direction, helping people change their minds. And because that often causes a little bit of controversy, it's uncomfortable to make that change. Usually folks who are in the C-suite struggle to do that because they've been told in every other aspect of the business not to rock the boat, not to ruffle feathers, not to unleash this avalanche of negativity. And so those are a couple of things, you know, that make it hard. If you're only relying on the C-suite for thought leadership, you're missing out on the huge potential to connect with buyers, job candidates, investors at all levels of the organization. I see it very similarly in the sense of it's pontificating, but blowing smoke. It's not planting your flag in a place and say, and for instance, the CEO of Patagonia said, hey, I'm going to give most of my money and this is what we're going to do with it, with Patagonia. And he put, and everybody loved it. It was like, people were like, oh my gosh, like, but you, but there's other ramifications too within that. His family was probably like, what the hell are you doing? What's going on here? Um, but it's, it's, I mean, there's always going to be there's always going to be fallout with anything that you do, but it's like, what's, what's helping the greater good in the sense of how everybody's going to benefit. But you're right. Like there's a lot of CEO letters that went out, like, you know, the Silicon Valley bank and that kind of stuff of trying to address and very watered down, but that's, you're, you're moving people's positions based upon what sea level decisions, what happened in every time I saw a watered down statement like that, every, with any CEO or any sea level, I immediately like, well, why don't you just remove yourself from the position? Why don't you give the money back? Like Apple, Tim Cook, he just said, hey, we're going to, we're not going to get bonuses this year. We're going to keep people on staff. That again, planting a flag. This is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to articulate it. I think everybody's just very scared around this time of being like a bear market and things happening where they're unsure of the short-term gains that they need to hit quarterly. But in the long term, it's going to benefit everybody else. People, are, More people are wanting to work there. More people are going to stay there. It's going to help for longevity. But also, I've just noticed companies like um, Atlassian, where they've invested in the long term. They don't look at sh the short term. You have to hit, yeah, obviously you have to hit quarterly gains. And you, th you figure out the margins. And that's where I think a lot of companies are struggling and, or the ones that have gone under is they haven't diversified. They haven't built cyclical revenue. It comes down to thought leadership of how do you articulate that? And so have you implemented or have you seen any implementation on the pillars that you have mentioned with what you're doing at um, Atlassian, just putting practical advice to use? Yeah, so there's a couple ways this happens. I think one of the things for the work that I do, so I sit on our Agile and DevOps team. And obviously as a marketer, even though we're very smart, we know a lot of things. Unfortunately, we do not have a ton of credibility with a developer or more technical audience. And so we actually have some tech evangelists that sit on our team whose specific goal is to talk about the practices and not just talk about the products, but talk about the practices, talk about what really happens on teams and in organizations around the culture, the communications, how they scale, all of their processes. And yes, sure, 
Sometimes there's some tools in there, but it's not just coming in and saying, oh yeah, buy this one tool from Atlassian and solve all your problems. No, let's have some real conversations because I personally have lived through this. I personally have managed a team through this. I've personally scaled an organization through this. This is what I found. These are the pitfalls with just using a tool. And so having them write, um, one of my colleagues talks specifically about what he calls the complexity limit and raising the complexity limit and how there is a certain amount of overhead as organizations grow, we're just getting work done. The non-work is the hard part. The actual work itself is not what's causing the issues. It's all of the organizational stuff around the work that's making it hard. And so he has termed this the complexity limit. He's got a whole little chart about raising it. He's got symptoms. He's got diagnoses. None of that has anything to do with our tools specifically. Now, we do have a tool that can help you with that. But if you don't recognize the symptoms, if you don't understand that the solution has to be more than a tool, you're going to fail if all you do is buy our tool off the shelf, right? So that's one area where I think we've done a really good job positioning this person who already has credibility. And now we're starting to work more on that profile piece for him. He's got the credibility. He actually has really strong depth of ideas. Previously, he was not very prolific. And so because of that, he struggled to build a profile. We're now helping equip him to be more prolific. So this is where, again, he already has the depth of ideas. He's already creating a lot of content. But for example, he gave an excellent, I think, 45-minute talk at one of our conferences. And that talk is one asset. He's not as fluent in the skill set of repurposing that talk into 10 LinkedIn posts or into five community posts or into a series of, you know, shorter articles or incorporating all of the um, images from that talk into a series of articles. That's where marketers help. I don't come in and create the complexity limit and talk all about it and talk about the symptoms and talk about the solutions. I don't know about that because that's not my lived experience. He does. The thing he doesn't know about is how to do that repurposing. That's where my team comes in. That's where we know. And so if you can get somebody who's already got that strong depth of ideas and has that credibility, but they're struggling on the profile or the prolific or the, yeah, the profile and the prolific piece, that's where you can get that synergy. So that's, that's one example from a technical perspective. I'll give another example, and this is something we've done that's great from both a content marketing perspective and a thought leadership perspective. So we have our team playbook. It's free. It's ungated. No email necessary. You can come. You can use these plays. We have organizational designers and organizational behavior specialists. Um, basically, these, these folks have PhDs. They are well-versed in the research across multiple different disciplines. And so they're looking at how teams work. And they are also looking at how teams are working and how that's evolving now that remote work and distributed work are more prevalent. So they're literally putting their research PhD skills to use to understand the trends, to understand the gaps. And then as a team, we're coming up with plays. Um, that's what we call them, plays, exercises, kind of workshop things that you can run with your team to solve those gaps. And again, you can do those with our tools. You can run your retros with Confluence or Trello. Um, you know, you can run, we have templates for these things, but we also have partner templates with Nero and Mural, for example, if you want to do some whiteboarding on these things, or you can pull out sticky notes and do it physically on a whiteboard or with sticky notes. So yes, there is a tie into our, our tools and into our mission, but ultimately the new research and equipping people with the plays 
That's the thought leadership piece. And you can do that whether you buy our tools or not. So those are two examples, a, a technical example and a more generic business example that um, we also put our put out research. We have our state of teams report. So again, from a thought, true thought leadership perspective, we're running that, um, we're connecting that across not just the practices that are happening in real teams and our surveys, but also with that formal research that our PhDs are doing. And then we're connecting out with practical ways that you can improve. And then way, way, way down the list, it happens to tie in with our products. And so that's where you're starting to really see that synergy of how thought leadership can help you build that trust, build that affinity, and then also in the long term lead to adoption of your products. I've been nodding my head this whole time. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And they're what I've just kind of seen in the market space is it's been very much like product heavy. It's been like, it's been out there. That's why you sell Salesforce and all these other companies lose on the customer experience. And because they lost out on understanding the messaging of what audiences and how to do things. And now they're bringing in knowledge experts in their products, but it was very much SaaS driven, product driven. It was very much automation. Let's get things out. And now you're seeing people are backtracking and it's a good pendulum effect where it's like, okay, how do we, how do we connect people in relationships? You know, who are the people that people are going to trust? And within the four pillars, you kind of narrowed in, like maybe this person's really great at in-depth knowledge, but they're not good at diversing, being prolific and going to different channels and how to repurpose things. Or maybe this person is really good at content, but then how do we make it practical and build a playbook out of it? And it's just, it's just kind of knowing your audience and going back to what marketing special ability is. It is sales at scale. Essentially, it's not one-on-one -on -one sales. It is sales at scale and how to get them in the door and to really understand them. So you shared two beautiful section or then the section of share your story. So I don't think we have to rehash any more stories because those were two excellent examples and people can go onto your site or even ask you personally, um, you know, with, with what you're doing with ask Ashley and that kind of stuff too, with your hashtag. And we can put that in there in the show notes and that kind of stuff too. But now talking about you, um, this is kind of the part of the episode where work is just one facet of who we are. Um, and it's not the begin all and end all, but it is a majority of our day. <laughs> and how do we make income? How do we live? But, you know, but it also drives our passion of what we are particularly love and particularly love to do. And so the about you section, Ashley, is just about your work, hobby and health. This is the four for you just to talk about what makes you tick. Um, even just the smallest things that you think are mundane listeners love because they can take this advice and say, Hey, I'm going to try this, or I'm going to think this way. And just the small little marginal pivots make dividends and, and scale people's lives exponentially. Yeah. I love this question. Uh, you know, my bio or the tagline that I always share is marketer, writer, speaker by day, singer, actor, fitness fiend by night. Um, and sometimes people are like, Oh, that's interesting that you share both the personal and the professional. And I think for me, one of the big things that I really lean into is work-life integration. So a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I talk about work-life integration. For me, I really believe that I bring my whole self to everything that I do. Um, yes, there is singer Ashley. There is Jim Ashley. There is wife Ashley. There is friend Ashley. There is you know work Ashley. There is stage Ashley. But work Ashley still comes to the gym with me because that is part of me. It's just which facet am I leaning into? So 
some of the intersections that I think really work well between my hobbies and my professional life, um, theater in particular, I, I do musicals on the side. And I tend to be an ensemble level performer, which is great. It means I get to sing a bunch of different types types of music. I get to dance. I get to play all of these different characters. And so that ability to step into my audience's shoes from a marketing perspective is enhanced by the fact that I'm constantly wearing different shoes on stage. Every other scene, I change costume. I change tone. I change mood. I change how I walk. I change how I talk, right? I have to become this person very quickly between scenes. And so when I bring that back from a marketing perspective, that ability to fall in love with this character, aka my audience, as a whole human, it's not just, hello, what are their pain points when they try to use our products? Okay, they're not using my products for fun. They're using it for a goal. They have a motivation and they have something that they want to get out of this scene, right? just like we do on stage. And so I think that's something where there's a lot of synergy there between that hobby and that professional endeavor. It works really well. I find a lot of marketers are former theater kids and I'm like, yes, 100%, this is perfect. Um, it also helps obviously from a public speaking perspective, not just in terms of you know stage fright or presence, but even just understanding how your posture, how your gestures, how your face, what does your face feel like and what does it look like? So an example of how that dovetails, I uh, saw some pictures of me when I was sitting on a panel and I was listening and I looked angry and I was just like, man, my face doesn't look pleasant. And so then, so then I was like, I should smile more. So the next time I was doing something, I was co-presenting and I was smiling the whole time, but I just looked kind of dopey. Like I didn't look like I was, I looked kind of dopey and ditzy and I was like, okay, it's somewhere between a furrowed brow and a dopey smile. And so I literally was practicing in the mirror, like mirror, curating a pleasant, engaged, listening face because I didn't want my persona to show up as angry or dopey. And so again, when we think about that from a personal branding perspective, as an example, how do you want people to see you? Do you want people to see you as approachable or as friendly or as formal or as sarcastic? How you show up, even in those down moments, the in-between moments when you're listening or when you're walking on stage or when you're writing, all of that curates this perception that people have of you. What do you want that to be? Um, so that's one area with the, the theater stuff that I think has a direct tie-in to how I show up professionally as well. Um, I've recently gotten into baking. And so there is a ton of content strategy lessons and marketing lessons from a baking perspective. I share these a lot on LinkedIn. One in particular, Miza in Plaza or Miza in Plaza. It's a French word that means everything in its place. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. So if any of your listeners do, maybe they can send a recording to me. But it's basically this concept that you step back and you set all of the ingredients out at the very beginning of the process. You're not pulling ingredients or measuring things as you go along. So this helps with accuracy as you're baking, it helps with speed as you're baking, it helps with cleanliness as you're baking. Um, and if I think about that from both a marketing perspective and a content perspective, what if we all took a step back and said, who is our audience? What are their pain points? Where, where do they spend time? How do they like to consume content? 
what if we did all that at the beginning instead of writing a blog post and being like, I don't know, we should put it somewhere or standing on stage and being like, I don't know, I'm talking about my products, right? Like, what if we mise in place our content strategy and our marketing strategy? So that's that's another intersection. And then finally, on the health piece, uh, that, that fitness fiend, one of my go-to examples for a concept that I talk about in my content playground framework and in my thought leadership pillars is this concept of content depths. Um, so talking to people at the conceptual, strategic, and tactical level, not just the phases of the funnel. Um, and so I use a, my go-to example for that as a fitness example and really thinking through um, what does it mean to be healthy and fit and how you would answer that question differently if you are yoga journal versus muscle and fitness magazine versus runner's world. And so answering those questions at the conceptual, strategic, and tactical level. Um, so that's another way that I pair both fitness and marketing strategy. Ashley, I absolutely love how you're, you're bringing in like the actor's point of view or theater point of view on things of how you approach things. It's, it's very, um, it's not chameleon. It's very focus-driven in how you can have other things turning and churning, but you have a focal point of what you want to convey. And I think more marketers and, and I think marketers in general, like there's, there's something to be said, or even just other professions to look outside your individual profession and do something else and learn from something else. Like either if it's fitness, theater, logistics, healthcare, science, whatever it may be to bring your personality, what you've gravitated to, um, throughout your whole life and bring it to conception. And you, and you brought it beautifully into conception, but you're also very methodical in the way that you, you've built this out and very phase-driven and practical-driven of actionable advice. So Ashley, thank you so much for kind of going through everything in the sense of the four pillars and more so about you of what makes you tick because I think that shows the listeners is that, oh, maybe I should be using this as a strength and using myself to bring my fullest self into the position. So Ashley, thank you so much for being on this episode. Thank you. This was fun. And to all the Converged Coffee drinkers out there, that's a wrap. <laughs>